0: From the newsroom of The Washington
1: Post. This
2: is Cleve with The Washington
0: Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, March 15th. Today, how Biden is responding to an unprecedented number of minors at the border and the doctors on the front lines of fighting misinformation.
2: I think that the sort of the overarching theme of the Trump administration's approach to immigration and border enforcement is deterrence, right? So the idea was to just keep people out by a variety of means and discourage them from even attempting to come across the border and even to seek asylum in the United States.
0: Nick Miroff covers the Department of Homeland Security for The Post.
2: What I think we're seeing with the Biden administration is a real eagerness to repudiate the Trump administration's policies but even though so many people were warning that making changes to border policy is is a volatile and and risky proposition that requires careful planning i think what we're seeing is that they appear to have made many of these changes without putting the infrastructure in place to to deal with the consequences so on saturday evening the biden administration announced that they were going to mobilize FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, to help care for the record number of unaccompanied minors who have been crossing the border and are now backed up in U.S. Border Patrol stations as well as HHS shelters. The backup is the result of a lack of shelter space for the unaccompanied minors with health and human services, they have more than 8,500 teenagers and children in their custody right now, and they've run out of bed spaces, uh, essentially. And so that's why there are now more than 4,000 teens and children in border patrol facilities, which were designed for adults. Think of like steel and concrete holding cells, totally inappropriate for that type of care.
0: And what is FEMA actually going to be doing to help care for these unaccompanied minors?
2: So the idea of, for with bringing FEMA in is that FEMA can help find emergency shelter space and take some of those teens and children out of the border patrol stations and work with HHS to help find family members for the kids, go through the sponsor vetting process. That determines whether or not they're safe to take custody of those of those teens and children.
0: And I want to back up a little bit and get some context on what's happening right now, because to me, in some ways, this is a problem that kind of came out of nowhere or it seemed to be a huge problem very quickly. But I wonder what the actual lead up was to what's happening right now.
2: Well, I think many listeners will remember that this is not the first time this has happened. Good afternoon, everybody. There was a big crisis along the border in 2014. In recent weeks, we've seen a surge of unaccompanied children arrive at the border, brought here and to other countries by smugglers and traffickers. The journey is unbelievably dangerous for these kids producing similar uh, emergency conditions in border patrol stations. Uh, We saw it to a lesser extent in 2016 and then in 2018 and 2019 during the Trump administration when record numbers of families came across. And so what's happening right now is that the Trump administration was using this emergency public health order known as Title 42 to essentially return anybody who came across the border without going through a normal immigration process. And they would process the the people that came across the border and return them to Mexico in a matter of hours. The argument for this type of arrangement was that it would prevent the spread of COVID inside detention centers. And the Biden administration came in and announced that they would no longer be uh, sending the children back to Mexico.
0: Today, we are announcing the restarting of the Central American Minors Program for children to be reunited with a parent who is legally in the United States. This program was ended abruptly by the previous administration, leaving around 3,000 children already approved for travel stranded.
2: But that was essentially, uh, I think, an an invitation to many families and, and many you know, parents who were interested in either reuniting with their kids here in the United States or sending them north, that uh, this was an opportunity um, to cross the border and be released into the United States.
0: Hmm. So, so this is a relatively direct response to the change in administrations and the change in the attitudes of those administrations, that it can translate so quickly into an increase in the number of people who are showing up at, at the southern border.
2: Yeah, the number of uh, of unaccompanied teens and children crossing the border was rising when Biden came in, but it's just skyrocketed since inauguration and since the policy change. This month, uh, the government is on, on pace to take in a record number of teenagers and children um, who are arriving without parents.
0: And, and why are they arriving without parents?
2: Well, this is a complicated scenario, but let me back up and give you a, a little snapshot of who the unaccompanied minors are. We know that s- about 75% of them are teenagers ages 15, 16, or 17. About 70% are male. The vast majority are from Honduras, Guatemala, and Mexico. Most of the Mexican miners who cross are, are returned to Mexico right away, but the, the Central Americans are being held uh, first by the U.S. Border Patrol and then transferred to Health and Human Services for a period of about 30, 35 days while it tries to identify a family member living in the United States who can take custody. So in about 90% of the cases, uh, that minor goes to either one of their parents or another immediate relative already living in the United States. About 40, 45% go to are released to a parent. So, in some cases, what we're seeing is a family reunification process, in which one parent is already has already crossed the border, is already present in the United States. Then that parent is is sending for that child or bringing that child up. In other cases, both parents are already here in the United States, and so this is a, it's part of a kind of staged uh, relocation or family migration.
0: The fact that the number of people showing up at the border, is so responsive to the the change in policies from the new administration. I wonder what that says about what this problem will look like going forward. Because in some ways, it really strikes me that the Trump administration had this attitude of, I don't know if you want to call it austerity, you could probably call it cruelty toward people showing up at the border in part to disincentivize people from trying to come. And it seems like, in some ways like that, what Republicans have been warning about is transpiring, where if you make policies that are more more accommodating for the people who are there, that it encourages more people to come.
2: You know, there are real consequences to this. There's been a debate about whether or not to call it a crisis. The Biden administration hasn't been calling it a crisis. They want to call it a, a challenge, a stressful challenge. But anytime you have more than 4,000 teenagers and children in these, you know, bare bones border patrol cells where the lights are on 24 hours and, and barely has enough room to lie down. I mean, that's, that's a crisis and that's a clear failure to plan to prepare adequately for the consequences of your policy changes. But what we're also seeing is that the Biden administration all of its policy responses so far have really been to try to accommodate the the growing numbers by adding capacity and by viewing this more as a logistical challenge. So I think that, you know, we'll continue to see this dynamic. And now the question is, you know, can bringing in FEMA really help alleviate the immediate humanitarian emergency that they're facing and, and allow them to start to put into place some of the more long term solutions that they've talked about, including, you know, economic development in Central America and working with partners and the United Nations, for example.
0: Yeah. So if the Biden administration doesn't want to veer back into the territory of Trump era policies or practices and they're bringing in FEMA, but that seems like a somewhat short term or stopgap measure, then what is their solution for trying to deal with what they might not be calling a crisis, but but clearly is a crisis?
2: So what they're doing so far is that they're telling people not to come to the border.
0: I want to be clear. Neither, in this, neither this announcement nor any of the other measures suggest that anyone, especially children and families with young children, should make the dangerous trip to try and enter the U.S. in an irregular fashion. The border is not open.
2: They're trying to counter message what smugglers are saying and what traffickers are saying in in Central America about this being the time to come that Biden has opened the border. They're talking about partnering with Mexico and Central American governments on a, a an economic development package. They're talking about working with uh, the United Nations Refugee Agency. But what we don't know is whether or not they're, you know, considering. New deterrent measures or or new enforcement measures other than saying that the border isn't open. And even it should be pointed out that even as they're saying the border isn't open, they are, in fact, allowing unaccompanied minors to enter the country and be released into the United States, as well as many families. So we're seeing a big increase just in the last several weeks in the number of parents arriving with children who are processed completely differently because there is a parent there. They do not go to health and human services. And that's why we've seen, even just in the last week or so, we've seen large groups of 100 to 200 or more migrants crossing the border in family groups, and that is very much like the dynamic we saw in 2019 when a record number of parents and children crossed the border.
3: Hmm.
0: As the Biden administration is considering more long-term solutions for this, it seems like a lot of that goes hand-in-hand with Biden's goal of passing some form of immigration reform. But I wonder if this current situation is actually making the prospect of some kind of immigration reform, and particularly bipartisan immigration reform, that much more challenging.
2: I think so. I mean... Thank you all for coming. I want to start first by thanking... Today, a Republican delegation led by House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is at the border. I came down here because I heard of the crisis. It's more than a crisis. This is a human heartbreak. ...holding a press conference to hammer the Biden administration on this issue. All because the policies of our president has changed and told them something different. I think we're seeing the Republican Party in some ways unifying again or or smoothing out some of its divisions by rallying around this issue. Biden administration is getting high marks for its response to the pandemic, to the management of the economy, but this is one area in which they are vulnerable, I think, to a lot of this criticism, and the Republicans have really pounced on that. So what this means for their legislative agenda is also a big question, and whether or not this means Republicans will demand more enforcement measures as part of any legalization effort, I think all of that is now an open question, but it's certainly easier to advance uh, immigration legislation when you're not in the middle of a crisis at the border.
0: Nick Miroff covers the Department of Homeland Security for The Post.
4: Dr. Atul Nakasi is a primary care physician in Los Angeles. Um, He works out of a clinic in Compton. And he's also now the uh, co-founder of a social media campaign called This Is Our Shot. Are you in clinic today? Oh, yeah, I am. I am. Uh, You are catching me in a clinic room right now. And the purpose of that campaign is basically to unite healthcare workers in spreading uh, positive messaging and information about vaccines.
0: Allison Chu is a wellness reporter for The Post. She spoke to producer Ariel Plotnick about the dual battles that healthcare workers are fighting right now. The battle against COVID and the battle against misinformation about COVID.
4: A typical day for Dr. Nakasi starts early. He's usually in the hospital by 8 a.m.
3: For morning rounds, I have 16 patients that I have to see. About a third of them have COVID.
4: Throughout the day, whenever he has a few minutes, he's on his phone checking social media, checking to see what people are saying about the vaccines. And then he gets off, usually about nine hours later. He was telling me that he's kind of subsisting on a rotation of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, Chipotle and Subway, and... So once he gives himself that time to eat, immediately after that,
3: he's back online. Checking my social media feeds to see what misinformation is out there, what mistruth is out there.
4: So that takes him kind of into the rest of his night until close to midnight. And then it's, you know, it's bed and you wake up and, and he does it all over again.
1: And how does he end up finding this misinformation online? Like what tools does he use? One of the things that he
4: and other um, healthcare care workers have figured out is that it's really important to humanize their messages.
3: Which is why we really spurred and motivated physicians sharing their vaccine stories.
4: So one common thing that we've been seeing is doctors and nurses posting vaccine selfies, you know, either getting the shots or right after. And they're explaining how they felt, how the process went why they decided to get the shots, that's been a tool I think quite a few of them have used because they've realized that these types of personal stories resonate a lot more with the public than regurgitating the facts from a complex scientific paper.
1: What are other doctors doing to help people feel more comfortable with the vaccine?
4: Dr. Bernard Ashby is a vascular cardiologist in South Florida. He is part of... A group of Black doctors who have kind of organically come together to talk about COVID and the vaccines.
3: I've been on the ground level. Every interaction I have, i get an opportunity to inform folks and equip them with information. Mm -hmm. And uh, believe it or not, once folks hear me out and they hear about the vaccines and they get some accurate information, A lot of them feel a lot more comfortable with getting the vaccine. The majority of my Mm -hmm. patients, family members and friends uh, will be getting the vaccine.
4: And one really interesting avenue that they've decided to use to get their message across is Clubhouse, which is this fairly trendy new social media app where it's kind of audio only and you have these rooms that you go into and you host sessions. And so Dr. Ashby and his fellow doctors have been going on to Clubhouse and hosting sessions on COVID.
3: Clubhouse is so dope. Yeah. yeah it offers a, a medium where you can actually have uh, a discussion as opposed to, you know, a little sound bites in, in the comment section or whatnot. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I think that's a, a great format. We've been using it. A few lectures on COVID after we got our vaccines, we went on there. (laughs) Yeah. Had a discussion, you know, basically said, hey, we're alive, we're fine.
4: They're using Clubhouse as a way to reach people who maybe may not be on more traditional social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook or, or Instagram.
1: You know, these healthcare workers, they have full time jobs on top of this sort of night shift, fighting misinformation and fielding questions. Does this weigh on them at all? It absolutely
4: does.
2: It's tough. It's like never ending. I mean, it's never yeah. ending. There, There's not a moment
3: where I don't feel some level of, of duty or responsibility or action that I should take.
4: A lot of these doctors and nurses have realized that one of the tools that they have is to be open and be willing to share their personal experiences. But the downside of that openness is it makes them Vulnerable to vitriol or criticism from people online. There was one moment that always sticks out in my head during this pandemic. Was I very intentionally waited for everybody to leave my clinic, go home for the night? I just like laid my head on my desk and just started crying. One of the women I spoke to about this was Jennifer Buchanan McKinney. She's a family medicine physician in Fredonia, Kansas, and she was getting pushback for trying to correct people's misconceptions about the pandemic and i i think it was kind of a combination cuz people were you know people it was probably the peak of where people were being um very critical on social media and then mm-hmm. and then i had school board people that were angry at me and you know it's just it's just some of those things where it all kind of comes together and, yeah. and you kind of feel like you can't win
0: you know
3: yeah.
4: Um, and not that you're trying, I guess not that you're trying to win. It's just like you're trying to do good. And, and you're like, how
1: is this happening? Like, what, what is happening? You know, why do they do this?
4: Dr. Nakasi really said it best. It's been pretty well understood that doctors and scientists are some of the most trusted um, messengers to the public. And these doctors and nurses realize that they have this responsibility to keep the public informed, as Dr. Nakazi said it.
2: I think we realize that if not us, then who? Mm-hmm. And if
3: not now, then when?
1: Are there solutions to this misinformation problem? Like, if this isn't sustainable for healthcare workers to do 24-7, what can be done to solve it, if anything?
4: They've all mentioned that it's tough with social media to gauge whether they're having an impact or not, but they have all received quite a few comments from people, you know, thanking them for their work or even saying things like, before I came across your posts, I was hesitant about getting vaccinated, but you've convinced me. These doctors and nurses, a lot of them really aren't trying to tackle this on their own, but they're really kind of banding together to support one another and to figure out what is the best way for us to message and to get our points across to the public. And by doing that, a lot of the doctors and nurses have said that they don't feel like it's all on them. There are so many other doctors and nurses out there who have taken on the same responsibility and are doing the
0: same work. Allison Chu covers wellness for The Post. Ariel Plotnick is a producer on the audio team. It's not just doctors and nurses doing the work of using their influence to promote vaccines. The acclaimed cellist Yo-Yo Ma got his second coronavirus vaccine dose on Saturday at a clinic in Massachusetts. And after, while he was waiting out the mandatory 15-minute observation period, he took out his cello and started to play. ¶¶ That was Yo Yo Ma playing at Berkshire Community College in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. For Post Reports. Thanks for listening. On Friday, we aired an episode looking back at this year since the pandemic drastically changed our lives through the eyes of a nurse at a New York City hospital. Check it out if you missed it over the weekend. That episode is called A Pandemic Year. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post.